All right, I am Davey. Um, I'm pumped. This is like a you know a small room, which is cool because I like that. That means hey, if you guys want to interact or like raise your hand and be like that was completely wrong, just do it. You know, um, I I think any person that steps in and teaches for somebody will say I'm so honored to be here, uh, which I am so honored to be here. Uh, this is such a cool um, thing that's come to fruition. You know, I, I know many of y'all don't know me, but. Uh, there's been many a nights over ice cream that we have spent praying for this right here. Uh, praying for just God's direction, God's wisdom, uh, His provision, uh, which I know as a church you guys have seen, His direction as a church you guys have seen. Um, I've known Jason for a long time, uh, been a big fan. I've known Josh for a long time, always been a big fan. Uh, I have him um, scheduled for my deathbed to sing uh, uh, Beautiful by Phil Wickham, don't forget that. Um, Brian, me and Brian go back all the way to high school, which is ironic. He's probably like, why is Davey here? Like, <laughs> I know that kid too well. Um, but me and him have done ministry together. And so it's just a cool thing that God, you know, just what he does and how he brings things full circle and um, shows himself in our lives. And so I'm excited to be here. Uh, I told Jason that I would just pick up where he left off. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll just, uh, we're going to start in verse one of chapter four and we'll read through it. Um, and then we're going to pick it up in verse 12, uh, but just to get the context, we will read through it. I know Jason, um, he cares more about what the word says than the words that come out of his mouth. So uh, I'm the same way. Uh, I, I, you know, I can't say anything better than what the Bible already has to say. So let's just start reading. Uh, I'm in the New King James Version. I don't know what you guys are using, uh, but that's what I use. So uh, verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Yeah. Now, when the, temp, uh, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the <coughs> holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall, wor- you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. 
Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James and the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father. They left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness. Look how many times it says all. All kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went through all, throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, uh, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. It's interesting, at the end of this, it says that great multitudes followed him. And it talks about from Galilee, from Decapolis, uh, which is the ten cities, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. If you turn to the back of your Bible and you look at the map, uh, especially the Holy Land, if you look, the whole promised land, that covers about the whole promised land. It says great multitudes followed after him, which is interesting because when we get started, I want to read um, the Great Commission, and it starts with 11 disciples. Oh, how many had fallen off, how many had walked away. Um, But we pick up in verse 12. Um, of course, after uh, you know Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist, uh, the Holy Spirit ascended upon him as a dove. Uh, he's immediately sent out into the wilderness to be tempted, it says, by the Holy Spirit. So this is something that God, or Jesus, in complete submission to the Father, was led into the, spirit, into the wilderness, wilderness to be tempted. Uh, it's important that we note that. Uh, I believe that this is when everything changed. Um, as Jesus told the devil to leave him, the devil had to. The devil is in under authority of Christ. Therefore, when he says, leave me, he has to leave him. He has no other choice but to go at that point. He will return in the life of Jesus. We see him come up, pop his head up in a few places. Uh, one uh, famous one is when Peter. Uh, Peter, you know, he says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the son of God. You are, you are the Messiah. You know, he says, oh, oh, glory to you, Peter. God has revealed this to you. And then he goes on to tell him, and soon I'll be on the cross and I'll be dead and, and I will rise three days later. And then Peter comes in and goes, oh, far be it from you, Lord. And that's when he knew Satan was speaking through Peter saying, hey, uh, don't go to the cross. Hey, that can't be. You can't be doing that. And that's when Jesus says the famous depart, you know, get away from me, Satan. He, you know, he, he calls him out right then and there. So this isn't the only time that Jesus uh, is surrounded by Satan, uh, you know, trying to keep him off that cross. Um, but the devil left him and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. I, I believe, again, this is this is the turning point, because up until this point, everything that Satan had tried to do, he was allowed to do. You know, a lot of times he had many victories. He, he, he knocked Israel, well, first he knocked Adam and Eve off of their, uh, their, their stand, you know. And then he continued on, and, and sin entered into the world, and sin uh, got worse and worse. And uh, even in the children of Israel, he was able to accomplish things, accomplish things, always knocking them off of the, the pathway to God and, 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 and diverting their ways. Uh, but here, he comes against our Savior, and Jesus holds strong. And that's why Jesus considered, you know, the second Adam, the, 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 perfect, the perfect Adam, uh, because he was able to withstand that. And I, I wonder what went through devil, you know, Satan's mind when, when this happened. He goes, oh, no. You know, he knew that that time in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when, Jesus, when, when God told him, you're a curse to walk the earth and I will make, uh, you know, you will bruise my Savior's heel. This is, this is that moment where he's probably, you know, staring down the barrel uh, of what's to come. 
uh, with what Jesus is about to accomplish. So, let's pick it up in verse 12. And now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. Uh, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali. Now, when, if you just read through this, you think that, okay, went from you know, baptism uh, to being in the wilderness, being tempted, to all of a sudden now he is uh, moving to Capernaum. But if you look at it, it heard that when John had been put in prison, this is actually about a year later. This is not uh, chronologically in order. There's a year span that happens here. Uh, we can find what happens within that year in the book of John. You look in the book of John, you can see that um, after his uh, baptism and after the wilderness, he returned back to where he was baptized in that area, and he spent time, uh, you know, starting his ministry. If you look, he starts to go north from there. The first place he goes is Canaan. Remember the Cana, the where he would go into and do the, turn water to wine. The Bible says that that was his first miracle that was manifested. That shows that he was manifested. So. Um, in that one-year time frame, uh, we have him leaving. Uh, we have him going into the, the, the wedding where he turned water to wine. We have him cleansing the temple for the first time. He does go into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple for the first time. Uh, he has that famous meeting with Nicodemus where Nicodemus, he tells him you must be born again, uh, the Nick at night. Um, you guys ever heard that? Um, and then also the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. So Jesus has already gone out on his own and into these areas and is not so much spreading his gospel, but, but getting his word out there, getting his fame out there. He preaches the same message of John the Baptist, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, he does not yet go on to tell him, I am the Messiah, I am the, the, the truth and the life, you know, salvation comes through me. He hasn't gone on to, to give them the gospel per se, uh, but he is telling them that they should repent uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here we find that John had been put in prison. Uh, we know that uh, through later in the book of John, we learn that what happened with John, John was going around doing his thing. Uh, he was not afraid to say what, what, he, what he believed to anybody. And when he came to King Herod, he called him out on basically uh, his uh, incestuous relationship with his niece and uh, you know, said, hey, well, first off, that was your brother's daughter, uh, not to mention, you know, um, you know, you married her, called him out. Herod didn't like that. Herod imprisoned him. Later on, she dances in front of Herod and, and entices him. And he goes, oh, anything, I'll give you anything. And we all know the story. She requested that to have John the Baptist's head on a platter. And therefore, King Herod did. Although reluctantly, he did do it. So uh, at this point, John has been put in prison. Uh, he departed to Galilee. Now, it's important that you understand that Galilee is a Gentile area. Um, although it's in the Promised Land, it says right there, Zebulon, Natali, uh, those were um, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is one of the places all the way back in the book of Joshua that God had carved out for them. Um, it's in the north side of, of the Promised Land, uh, up towards the border. So uh, you've got where he was from, Bethlehem, Nazareth. And then as he moves up, he gets closer to the Sea of Galilee. That's when he goes through Canaan, um, Cana. Uh, and then he moves up into this area, which is on the, it would be, I guess, the northeast side or the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, this area here, uh, especially Capernaum, was a, uh, a big sea town. Uh, this is a place where they would have had 100, 125-foot uh, docks where people would come and they'd park their boats. Uh, there was a, this was a high trade area. The Phoenicians would come through this area as they were traveling to the sea. Um, it, was, it was full of 
uh, Jews. It was full of Gentiles. It was full of Romans. It was had a strong Greek culture. Um, <laughs> In, and if you look all the way back in Isaiah, this is where he gets right here, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. You know, Isaiah chapter 9 is a prophetic chapter, and he's, he's saying that this is where Jesus will go. and says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. So it's interesting. You would think that if Jesus was going to start his ministry according to, to Matthew, he would go to where all the cool Jews were, right? He would go to Jerusalem. He would spend his time there. Maybe there he could influence certain Pharisees and certain people within the church that have power. But no, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus goes <coughs> to the dark places. He, he, he sends himself into places that need his light. Uh, and it's important that he goes there because that's where he comes across uh, his, um, uh, his disciples that he's going to... Now remember, Matthew is from Capernaum. You know, so it's interesting that Matthew picks up Jesus' ministry right here in his own hometown. We know that later through the book of John that Peter actually has a house in Capernaum as well. So uh, a lot of these people live here in this area. Um, so it says, Galilee of the Gentiles, verse 16, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. Again, with all those cultures um, in this area, uh, most scholars believe, and this is through Josephus, that there was probably, I think, two hundred to 300,000 people that lived among this small, well, not a small area, but there was probably 50 to 60 villages. And so it was a very highly populated place where all these cultures are. And because you have all these cultures there, um, sin was abound. You know, these, the, you had polytheistic people, uh, people that uh, worshipped, you know, sex and different things like that in order to worship their gods uh, that came through the Roman and the Greek cultures. Um, but it's interesting because if you go all the way back to the book of Joshua, God warned them. He said, don't intermingle with the, uh, with, with the Gentiles. He says, this is your land. I want you to keep your land. I don't want you to intermarry with the Ammonites and with all the other ites in the area. I want you to basically stay pure is what he was saying. I want this to be your land. But we know that immediately they began to intermingle, to intermarry um, into the societies, uh, which brought in other worshiping of other gods. Um, and we know that it, it didn't take long uh, for it to... Um, I think it was Solomon's sons, Jeroboam, uh, with the big split. That's when they kind of lost this area. Uh, not to mention, this is this area that is... Uh, it was conquered by the Assyrians first. So when the Assyrians came in to conquer the part of the Promised Land, they went to this area first. So that just shows you that this place that God had, had preserved for them, carved out for them, and given to them as a promise has now been intermingled into the world. Darkness has entered into this area. Uh, this is many generations past at the time of Jesus is there. So the darkness has only got worse in that area. Um, so it's just important to remember that. And it says in verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We all know that that was what John the Baptist went around preaching. Repent for the kingdom. He was not the savior. He did not perform signs and miracles. But he did go into place and say, it's time for you to repent. It's basically, it was God's foretelling of, hey, who's going to follow me? Who is going to turn from who you are and follow after me? That was the message of John the Baptist. That's what he came baptizing with. And Jesus starts his ministry saying the exact same thing. I think it's cool that he does that. Uh, you've probably heard kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Uh, the Jews would typically not say God. So when you read kingdom of heaven, it's the same thing as the kingdom of God. But Matthew, who was a Jewish tax collector, writing a gospel to the Jews, he did not use the word God. So he says kingdom of heaven. It has the same thing 
uh, the same context. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and kind of the main thing that I want to pull from these, uh, these three sections here as we, we just go through the end of chapter 4 is, is in this time, Jesus gives us a great example of what it means to be a disciple. Um, one, he is an example. He is a disciple, a disciple of his father. Uh, but he's a great example of who we should follow. So, so first, he, he shows us how that we should go. Just as Jesus went into those areas, he went. You know, we are called to go. Um, and then he actually calls the disciples. He makes disciples, and then his disciples make disciples. Uh, and it just—it's a—it's a good thing for all of us to know because if we are followers of Christ, then you're a disciple of Christ. Uh, literally, the word disciple. Uh, there's several meanings. Uh, the the most common one is a personal follower of Jesus during his life, especially one of the twelve apostles. Well, we can't be one of those. Uh, sorry, I wish, but um, but another simpler one is a follower, a student of a teacher or of a philosopher. I mean, that's what it is. If you are a disciple, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are learning His ways and following after His ways. You're a disciple of Christ. That's something that you choose, by the way. We are called to that, but you have to make that personal choice. Simply, it's someone willing to follow at all costs. That's what disciple comes down to. And I think you can just, in your mind, you can, you can think the word disciple is something that you have to obtain or something that you have to earn or something that, that comes after a, um, you know, a degree of some kind. But that's just not the case. It simply means follow. You're, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a disciple of Christ. Now, if you call yourself a disciple of Christ, that does come with some things that you should know about. I want to read in Matthew chapter 28... And all of you, I'm sure, have heard this. This is the Great Commission. Um, starting in verse tw- uh, 18. It's on the board. Matthew 18. It's not on there? All right. Well, I'll read it to you if you want to turn there. Matthew 28, 18. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee. Isn't it interesting how it comes full circle again? You know, he starts his ministry there in Galilee, and then uh, these great multitudes are following after him. And, and they, they, would, they literally believe 20,000 or so people were following after Jesus and his words as he was performing these miracles, as he was preaching, as he was teaching. It comes down at the end of Matthew, before his ascension, it says that 11 disciples went away with him. Of course, we know Judas. Judas was not there at the time. Uh, he had already hung himself and he was gone. Um, but it's just interesting to me how many people throughout Christ's life had chose to follow him who said, I will be a disciple of you, Christ. This is working out for me. But at the end, there was 11. There may have been more, but we have recorded here 11. Um, and again, there's, there are a lot of people that believed in Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to others, and, and there were those who saw him and knew it was him and believed in him. But I'm talking about the disciples, those he called to this mountain, uh, which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, and this is the Great Commission, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Amen. I love the fact that he gives us this great commission. And let me just tell you, this is all of us. If we are followers of Christ, if we are disciples of Christ, this is for us. This is not for the church leadership to do. This is not for the deacons to do, the bishops to do. This is is for all of us as followers of Christ. But I love the fact that he gives us the commission, but it comes with a promise. That's, that's so Christ, right? That's so God. You can look through the Bible and he gave promises along with his commands. 
And he says here that I am always with you even to the end of the age. That means he's with us now. And I love that about our God, that he's living and breathing, that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Look, don't follow anything in this world unless they can claim that all authority has been given to them in heaven and earth. Right? And that pretty much knocks everybody out. You know, you can be a disciple of Buddha. You can be a disciple of Muhammad. You can be those things. But, but none of them can say that I have been given authority of all heaven and earth. That's our Savior. That's why it's easy to follow after him. Because he is above all and he will always be with us. So first we are called. Go. Jesus went. And I love that where he went was the same place that John did his ministry. And when, when Herod shut John's mouth up, what happens? God's got another one for him. He opens one more mouth. It's Jesus' mouth. He goes into those places, um, which was called the, the, I can't even say it. It's called the, the Tetrarchy, Tetrarchy, T-E-T-R-A-R-C-Y. Tetriarch, is that it? Tetriarchy, maybe? That sounds like it. But basically it means a kingdom split into four by four individuals. So in this area was Herod, the, the, the one that put John in prison was the one who eventually killed John. So uh, Jesus literally goes into the same area that was his authority. And I think that's just so cool that, that he didn't avoid this area, that he went, uh, he was willing to go into this area. When one mouth was cut off, he replaced it with himself. Uh, he went in the place that they called darkness. This place was hated by the Jews. It was literally the Jews that didn't live there would not want to go there. It was a place where if the Jews did go there, they would take their hems of their uh, robes and they would hold it tight so they wouldn't touch anyone. They wouldn't bump into any of the Gentiles. Uh, but, but there were Jews there because we know because there were synagogues there. Um, but again, they, they considered it darkness. These people were outcasts to the Jewish society. What you would think religion uh, in those days, religion had outcast all these people. Uh, which we know that Jesus came to just break down the walls of religion and bring in relationships. So um, they were hated by the Jews. He went into an area that no one would expect him to go, which Jesus did this so often. He did things weird. You know, you would go, Jesus, why are you going into these places? Why are you calling these people? Like there's got to be a more effective worldly way to do this. Yet no, Jesus being above all things, being, being above our understanding and all, um, he went into these places and he chose people that we would not to go. So as disciples of Christ, we follow his examples. We are to go. You know, that is something that will look different for all of us, but we are called, you know, we are to go when we're called and we are to go where we are called. It's important that we listen and we are in communion and that we hear these callings and, and we go. Now, I'm not talking about just, you know, oh, I'm being called into this life altering situation. I'm talking about the small things as well. I think daily, if you're in communion with the Lord and you have the Holy Spirit and you're led by the Spirit and you're walking in the Spirit, there's going to be things in your life daily that God calls you to go do. It may be uncomfortable. It may not be a comfort zone. It may be something that you don't think you can do. That's all right. He's still calling you to go. Whether it's when, whether it's where, we should be able to go without hesitation just as Christ did. It would have made more sense for him to go into Jerusalem, like I said, where all these cool Jews were. Um, because he was comfortable in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Now, he was born in Bethlehem, spent time in Egypt, he was raised in Nazareth, and now in this time he's moving his, his, his operation to Capernaum. We know that he was rejected in Nazareth, right? His own people, he said, he said, you can't be the Messiah, we watched you grow up. Like, this makes no sense, you're just Jesus. 
You're Joseph's kid. You can't. He was rejected in his own hometown, uh, therefore he left. But you have to understand, for the Jews, especially devout Jews, they would go to Jerusalem once a year. You know, they would go for Passover. They would go for Pentecost. They, all the Jews would come to that area at that time. So Jerusalem was a place he felt comfortable. We know that Jesus has gone to the temple and he has taught. Even as a young boy, he was teaching in the temple. Uh, that he had interactions there in Jerusalem. So it was a comfortable place for him to go. Not to mention, you have to understand, every time he went into Jerusalem, he probably passed by Golgotha and goes, that's where it's all going to end. That he continued moving forward, that he continued walking into those city gates, knowing that's where I'm going to hang on a cross. That's where I'm going to be humiliated. That's where it's all going to get. And that, that just fills me with such joy knowing that he continued to go, that he continued to just follow after. For 30 years of his life before he was called into public ministry, he went there. He, he continued moving forward. Um, it was a familiar place, a comfortable place. Um, you know, if you look at the Spirit of God, uh, drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Therefore, why do we have an excuse to be the Spirit of God driving us into places where we should be going and doing things? You know, he was in full submission. We should be, we should be in full submission. If we call ourselves disciples, if we call ourselves followers of God. So for you, maybe he's calling you to a specific destination or for a specific purpose. You know, uh, what you should understand is that he's calling you for a good work that he is already foreordaining for you to walk in. And I think a lot of times we get scared of what God may be calling us to do. That could be as simple as having a conversation with a family member. That could be as simple as, simple as joining a prison ministry uh, more, or, or a co-worker that you know that God has been saying, I need you to go talk to this person. I just need you to say these few words. I've already lined up everything. I just need you to say these few words. It's in those times that we can respond to the, that go call. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 10, uh, should be up on the board. Do you have that one? Yeah. Oops. That's Hebrews. Hold on. So fancy. Oh, no, God. <laughs> there you go. No. Ephesians. Ah! That is so cool. So here's proof of it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship in the Greek translates to the word poem, which we get the English word poem. So what this reads is that we are his workmanship. We are his poem. We are his art. We are his art form. We are what he is continually working out in our own lives, uh, shaping and molding us, just as you would do artwork in order created in us for good works, which God has beforehand, that we should walk in them. A lot of, a lot of times the things that, that we are being called to do, he has already for forehand prepared we just need to walk in them i to me that just makes it seem easier that just means you know what whatever i'm about to get myself into god foreordained that god wants me to do this you know so uh i can't believe he he would consider me his poem that he would consider me his art form because i know where i've come but just like artwork it only gets better right he is continually you know the artwork of you who he is he's continually making it better continually making it better um, so, so there, we, uh, we see that he foreordains things. So maybe for us, it is being called somewhere, you know? Maybe it is a specific destination. Maybe it is another town. Maybe it is another place. Who knows? I'm not telling you to leave the church. That's not what I'm saying, Jason. <laughs> what I'm saying is, is we should be, as disciples of Christ, willing and open to go. It's important for us. Um, but I also see this a different way. Maybe he's asking us to go into the dark places in our lives. Maybe he's asking us to go into places that are uncomfortable for us to deal with things. Maybe it's just looking into your inner man. I think a lot of times it's easy to do an outer work 
and to show an outer being, but when you start to look into the inner man or the inner woman, there's some dark places in there, and there's some things in there that I think God's going, you know what, as a disciple of mine, we've got to weed this out. We've got to get this out. It could be sin that you've hidden from others. It could be uh, you really live in unforgiveness, and you really need to find a way to forgive somebody for something that's happened to you. Maybe it's you need to seek forgiveness. There's different things that God will call you into the inner man. You know, David said, uh, examine my heart. Literally, open my heart. Find any wicked way in me and get rid of it, Lord. That's a scary thing. If you've ever prayed that prayer, be ready. Because he may open up your heart and go, this, this is it. This is that thing that we have got to work on. And it's all because we want to be followers of Christ. So if he calls you to go into your inner man, I say Go. So it's important that we're always moving in a forward direction, uh, following after Christ in our lives, with our whole lives, and for our whole lives. Again, like I said, some of the disciples, they just fell off. During Jesus' own walk with the Lord, or walk in this world, they fell off. They came and they went. They came and they went. You know, there were times where they came to Jesus and said, I want to be a follower of you, but I have to go bury my father. Well, that guy's father wasn't even dead yet. So he's saying, so wait, so you want to wait for your father to die and then bury, then follow me. Jesus famously says, let the dead bury the dead. What he's saying was, I want somebody who's willing to drop it all and follow after me. That is what being a disciple of Christ. Again, some turned away, some ran away. But those who will go have been chosen to follow after him at all costs. And that we should follow him daily. So just keep that in mind. So I, I, I always like to kind of leave, leave you with a challenge. Like where, where are you going? Where will you go? Where have you gone? Are you going? I think these are all things individually because we're all on different planes in our spiritual walk. What that means to us. But where, where have you gone? Have you already gone? Uh, you know, are you looking out into this world? Are you looking into the inner man? Either way, we just need to get going. We need to be moving forward. Jesus constantly moved forward. He said, I only have a short time here to do this work. Eventually, I won't be here to do this, but this is my time to do it. I think for us, we only have a short time. In Ephesians, it tells us to redeem our time. We need to be redeeming our time, meaning we spent so long being this way. Now God has brought us to who we are here. This is where we redeem the time. And I think it's, it's just, a, again, that forward motion. Um, yeah, we should get going. You know, oftentimes you'll be in a comfortable, cushy place and God will call you out of it. I think that's just his nature. You know, you can look back in scripture and see, you know, when he called Moses, Moses had already went through all his stuff within Egypt and he already killed the Egyptian and he ran away. He found his wife and he found a great family. He was on the, uh, you know, on the side of the mountain and he had all his sheep and, you know, his family was going. He was probably in a very comfortable place. He was no longer in Egypt under that pressure and all that. He had already run away from uh, the affliction that was happening to the Jews and that's when God calls him, when he gets comfortable. Oh, okay, well, hey, now I need you to go back to where you came from. I need you to go back and deal with this because you're going to free my people. David, David was a shepherd's boy. All his brothers, they were all rough and tough soldiers. He was just a shepherd boy. The Bible called him ruddy. You know, it's like if I was super skinny, that's probably what David would look like with red hair. Um, you know, he, you know, but he was out and he loved it. You know, he was out there singing psalms and creating psalms to the Lord, uh, out with the sheep, fighting for the sheepfold and all those things. And then God called him. God said, no, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And then not shortly later, he had to fight a giant, you know. So again, sometimes God will call you from a comfortable place and move you out. One of my favorite stories is Elisha. 
Uh, I'm going to say Elijah and Elisha, and I'm going to mix them up like 10 times during the story. But you all know the story. Uh, Elijah is getting older, and God says, hey, I want you to go to this town. I want you to find this boy. He is the one who will be your predecessor. He will, he will be your disciple. You will teach him your ways. Uh, and Elisha walks up to this boy who's on a plow. I mean, he's literally working. He's working his family. He's got a good business going. Um, he's on the plow. Elisha walks up to him and throws his mantle on him. It's, you know, simulating that you will be who I am. You will be the great prophet of God. And it says that Elisha immediately took all the plow and everything. And he burned everything and left with Elisha. Now, I'm sure his family was like, why you just burn everything? Like, that was our stuff. We need that. But what I think it was is that Elisha was making sure he had nothing to come back to, that he wanted to burn it all so that he had no reason to come back and take up his old life. And from that moment on, he was a prophet of God. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus was a carpenter. Don't forget that. For 30 years before he was called into public ministry, he was a carpenter. He was a family man. You know, it's like, you know, he, 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 was, he was comfortable. And then all of a sudden he knew that this was the time that he was going to flip the world upside down. Saul of Tarsus, same thing. He was comfortable in his rage. He was comfortable in his power. He was comfortable in his beliefs. And then we all know the road to Damascus. God stopped him in his tracks. And he put scales over his eyes and he reduced him to nothing that day. Not to mention, uh, soon after, a man named Ananias, he was going to call Ananias and say, hey, you know that terrorist, uh, Saul of Tarsus? Well, I need you to go to this city. He's in this place. I've already told him you're coming. I need you to go and you need to, to minister to him. Ananias is going, you mean the guy who's killing people like us? Who's dragging people away from their families like us? Are you sure you want me to go do this, God? You know, that was probably a huge call for Ananias. But what did Ananias do? He went. He followed after the word of God and he went to this place and he found Saul of Tarsus and he was able to minister to him. Um, I, I don't think I would have done that. I mean, it's like the story of Jonah. You know, Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because Nineveh was a horrible place. They were a horrible people. They had done horrible things to Jonah's family as Jonah was growing up. And God's like, I need you to go there and save them. What? Jonah got on a boat to get as far away from possible. He was like, I'm not going there. Did, uh, why? Because I know you'll do the right thing and you'll save them, but I don't want any part of that. That's how much hatred he had. But yet, God called him out of his comfort zone to go across the ocean to a place that he was fearful of, to a people that he hated, and he said, do this. And Jonah, you know the story, reluctantly he did it. But sometimes he does call you from a safe place. Um, it wasn't too far back in my life, um, and I'm no saint. <laughs> I'm no, uh, I'm, you know, I, I, there wasn't, I guess it was probably two and a half years ago, I was at a pretty established church. Um, I was an associate pastor, uh, and things were good. Things were good. I mean, there were, there were things that I was dealing with internally, but things were good. And then one day God came to me and said, it's your time to go. And I said, my time to go? That means I have to let go of, of this pastorate. I have to let go of, of what, you know, you've given me. And he said, yeah. And I had a complete peace about it. And I would have been in sin if I would have stayed <laughs> because he gave me a piece about it. And to, to leave that was scary. I had no idea where I was going. I, didn't, I mean, it's cool because I'm here today, but because of a decision like that, I could just sit here and be with you guys. But sometimes he calls you out of those cushy places to follow after him. And again, verse 17, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you notice right there in verse 17, it says from that time. Matthew uses the, that term from that time twice, once to kick off Jesus' ministry 
and the second time in anticipation of that cross. It's, it's a turning point. He says, from that time, uh, we are headed this way. So again, Jesus never stopped. He always continued going. He, was, he never stopped. He went into places that religion wouldn't go. He went into the hearts of people that, that we would not even think that God should be there. Again, that should be our example. We should not think like the world. Uh, we should be open to going into the darkest of places. We should be open to going into the darkest of people's lives and ministering to them, bringing them the light of God, because that's what he did. He took the, the brightest thing there ever was, and that's Jesus and his light, into the darkest regions of those areas. So let's keep going. Um, verse, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, verse 18, and Jesus Walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Again, cushy, comfortable life. They're doing what they've always been doing. And he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the sons of thunder, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed after him. Now, I think that this can be um, somewhat cult-like, <laughs> a man walking up and saying, follow me, because if somebody came up to you today and was like, I need you to follow me, you'd be like, hold up, <laughs> you know, this is weird. But it wasn't weird in those days. Rabbis had disciples. It was common for rabbis to go out and seek those who wanted to learn and to grow and who had God had called to the ministry and make disciples out of them. So what Jesus was doing was a common thing. But isn't it interesting that he would go into a Gentile place and call out Jews that were living amongst Gentiles, Jews that were not formally educated, Jews that didn't hold any kind of power. I mean, you would think that he would want to go and, and call, like, like, if he came today, like, he would, you know, it would make sense for him to go and, like, okay, well, well, we'll get Donald Trump because a lot of people listen to him, you know, we'll save him and, and we'll, 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 he'll be one of my disciples, you know, maybe we'll get, uh, you know, um, you know, maybe one of the late night people, um, you know, Jimmy Fallon, we'll get him saved. Therefore, he can start to spread the gospel. You know, uh, you know, you would go and you would find people that already have a following of some kind. That would make sense, right? I mean, if you want to spread the gospel as much as possible, you know, you could go out and get, you know, Joe Olstein. Maybe he'll get saved, and then when he gets saved, you know, he already has a great influence, and so he can go out and do those things. I'm sorry, that's bad joke. Yeah, in heaven, he'll hit me for that. But, um, but it's true. But I love Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee in this dark place. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now what's cool is, and we know because of the book of John, this isn't the first time Jesus has met these two. That he had had experiences with Andrew and with Peter before this point. I love how whenever you see the word Andrew, it's followed closely by his brother, or Peter's brother. He was one of those guys that was always known as somebody else's brother. You know, that may be one of you, like, oh, you're Steve's brother, you know? You know so, uh, but Andrew lived in that. He was fine with it. Um, but if you look at the book of John, uh, you'll see that John and Andrew were actually friends. Um, Andrew was an older man. Peter was an older man at this point. Uh, John was a younger man. Most people think that he was in his late teens because of how long he lived 
after this point. So he goes on to live into his 80s, 90s um, to write Revelation and to be an elder in the church of Ephesus. So he, he outlives everybody. One, he doesn't get martyred. But two, he outlives everyone. So a lot of people believe he was a pretty young guy at this point. So we know in the book of John that Jesus approached Andrew and John and he started talking with them and he, he learned who they were and, and they, they were disciples of John the Baptist. So they were following around the John the Baptist. John the Baptist, when Jesus walked up, what did he say? Here comes the Lamb of God. Here comes the one whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose, you know? And they're looking, okay, well, we're following after you, but you're saying all these great things about this guy. Maybe we should follow after this guy. So in that moment, they go to Jesus. And Jesus, they say, hey, where are you from? And Jesus says, come and see. And they follow him. They follow to see where he's from. And it says that for a better part of a day, Andrew and John, which we don't know what was talked about there, but I wish we had the transcript. But for a better part of the day, he spent time with this older man, this younger man, and he said who he was to them. And it says right after that point, Andrew went on to find his brother. It said it followed, he went to, he immediately went to go find his brother at that point, Simon. And then Andrew brings, brings Peter back to Jesus. And as Peter's walking up, he's then Simon. He goes, ah, oh, Simon, son of Jonah. And this guy's like, how does he know my name? How does he know my dad's name? Like, this is super weird. And that's when he says, I will call you Cephas, the stone, the rock. Um, so again, they have had previous encounters with Jesus up until this point. This is just the point where he calls them to the ministry, uh, what we're reading about here. Um, Andrew is such an interesting guy because we don't know a lot about Andrew. We know a lot about Peter, right? We know what happens with Peter. We know, we know kind of who, who he is, and, and he's kind of you know, quick off the mouth. You know, he's, he's quick to react. You know, that's just kind of his nature. But Andrew, they called him Andrew the Ordinary because he was just kind of ordinary. Um, he, he didn't have these, uh, these, these things that I think Jesus had to work out of like he did with Peter, but they called him Andrew. But what Andrew was good at, Andrew knew how to bring people to Christ. Andrew was good at bringing people to the physical Christ. The first thing he does after talking with Jesus, according to the book of John, was go get his brother. Right? He brings his brother to the Messiah. We know that when they're about to feed the 5,000, it's Andrew that finds the little boy with the loaves and the fish. And he brings them to Jesus and says, here, I found this little boy. He's got this. Again, he's good at bringing people to Jesus. As a disciple, sometimes that's as easy as it is. We like to overthink it. We have to think that we have to be the savior. We have to be the, you know, we have to be the smartest, blah, blah, blah. No, we bring people to Jesus. And Andrew was very good at that. We know later that Philip is going to bring a, a, a group of Greeks. And, and Andrew goes, let's get these guys to Jesus. And he leads them to Jesus. It, it, that was what he was good at. And when we know about Peter, Peter was good about bringing people to the resurrected Christ. Right? It was that Pentecost that Peter was the one that stood up and 3,000 people were gained to the Lord that day. So again, who he's calling are, are simple fishermen. They believe that Peter and Andrew were both big men. They were strong men. Um, in the, the, the last part of John, we read that he's, um, when they're trying to pull all the fish in, the disciples can't do it. So he, Peter comes out, so he aboards the boat and he pulls it in by himself. So we know that Peter being a strong man um, in stature, Andrew probably being a strong man in stature, we've got John who's a a little guy, and then we've got James. And it's interesting, James, uh, who was wise none the least, James would be the first one to be martyred. He would be uh, one of the first to be called, one of the first to be martyred. And it's interesting, you've got James and John, brothers. One's the first to go, and one's the last to go. Just kind of interesting. I don't know what the, the, the premise of that is. But all the disciples were martyred except for John. 
John, although he went through some hard times, they say his martyrdom was a long life. All the other disciples got to get killed and go to heaven. But he had to stick around on the island of Patmos. He was dipped in oil. Uh, eventually ended everything in Ephesus. Um, but it's just interesting that one went first and one went last. So he's calling these men, men that you wouldn't think that he would want to call. Fishermen. You know, they weren't dumb, but they knew how to fish. That's why Jesus called them. You know what it means to, to make a net, to find the right place, to put the net in the right place, and to gather up as many fish as possible. Jesus said, that's who I want. Same thing with uh, James and John. Um, uh, he goes on, he finds two more brothers, son of Zebedee. They're in the boat with their father and they're mending their nets. It's interesting because if you look at Andrew and Peter, they were all about doing God's work. They were all about going out, bringing people to Christ. We see them in those actions. But then what do we know about John? John's a disciple of love, right? He always says, I am the one whom Jesus loves. You know, in his, in his gospel, you see a lot more emotion of love. And what's he doing? Mending, mending his nets. John was a man who wanted to mend things, mend lives together, mend things. So, so it's interesting that they're doing different things, but they all pertain to kind of who they are and who they will become. Um, he, he will go on to write, uh, you know, all the John's letters, Revelation, the Gospel of John. Um, you know, he, he was in the church of Ephesus where there he, he went to mend the church. As the church, the early church was growing and they were having problems, he wanted to mend the church. So it's just interesting uh, who it is that Jesus is calling. But they're in the boat with their dad. <laughs> Jesus comes up and says, follow me. I'm sure if that was my kids and a kid, a man walked up and said, follow me, and they got out the boat, I'm like, no, 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 no. Get back in the boat. Like, this is weird. But no. They all knew that something else was happening and they left their boat and their father, father and followed after him. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What I love about Christ is one, he, he, he says, I know who you are. I know what you know. Follow me. Yeah, I know your name. I know your, your skills. I know the things that you think you are, but follow me. But then he always comes with the promise, I will make you fishers of men. Again, as a disciple, oftentimes we think that we have to be on this level in order to be doing these kind of things, discipling others. But no, he says, follow me and I will do the rest. I will make you fishers of men. You know, he says, your name is Simon, but I will change your name to Peter, to rock, and I will build my church upon you. I'm sure when he first said that to Peter, Peter's like, what is he talking about? Like, this is weird, <laughs> you know? Uh, but it's important. Uh, we are to be made into a disciple and then make disciples. You know, the, the Great Commission says, go, make disciples of all nations. Jesus called them by name and then told them who they would be, fishers of men. Which fishers of men, to me, is kind of a strange way of putting it, you know? It, it almost seems like when you fish, you know, you, you, you bait a hook, you know, and you trick a fish, right? You trick them into it. But in those days, it was dropping a net, you know? It was, it was going to where the fish were, dropping out a safety net of, of a kind and then gathering them up in that net. So it's a little different than us putting a, a worm. They're like, ooh, look, a worm, and then you hook them. You know, it's like, that's not what the church does. The church is not going, hook men in there. You know. and they, I'll, I'll tell you, though, there are ways that some people teach and preach that they do that. They dangle something in front of them. You know, the prosperity gospel, they dangle something in front of them, and then when they, you know, they hook them, they hook them, you know, and they get the money and stuff. Anyway, um, 
But a disciple of Christ would follow at any cost. These guys left their livelihood. These guys left their family. These guys left their parents. These guys left everything to follow after him. The guy who writes this book, Matthew, he left the tax table right then and there. When he called Matthew, who Matthew had a cushy job, you know, all he had to do was skim off the top and he was fine. You know, he was hated by the Jews, but he was okay with it. Um, But he got up from the tax table and followed after Christ and his life was never the same. So for us, it comes at a cost. Every great choice comes with some cost, right? If you choose one thing, you're saying no to another. Is what you're saying yes to important enough to say no to this? Because I think as a follower of Christ, it should come at a cost, right? We were bought. We were redeemed, right? The bill has been paid for us. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit that is there until the day of redemption. We are, we are, he's already purchased us, right? So for us, what we do in this world should come at a cost. It should. We should live in a way that it costs us something, whether it costs us friends, family, reputation. I guarantee you, if you live for Christ the way he wants you to, there will be those who think you're silly for it. There will be those who look down on you for it. There will be those who don't want to talk to you because of it. It will cost you things. It can cost us uh, financially, reputation, uh, health sometimes, your friends. There's a reason it's called sacrificial love. There's a reason why we follow Christ recklessly because it oftentimes costs us something. I know in my family, I'm the only Christian in my family. And they, they're all okay with me, but it's still, it's still a weird situation, right? They know I'm not coming to their house on a Sunday morning for a birthday party because I'm going to church, you know? They know certain things that, you know, it has cost me certain things, and it should cost us something. You know, when I left a cushy pastorate job, it cost me something, Right? But you have to be willing to let those things go in order to follow after him, whether it's your occupation, whether it's your nets, whether it's your, uh, your whole upbringing. You know? Hopefully you won't have to. Hopefully you won't have to lose your job. Hopefully you won't have to lose your family and all those things. But Jesus made it pretty clear, if you want to follow after me, it may cost you these things. It will. You have to come to terms with those things. Can you put Luke 14, 25, 30, 25 up? Luke. So here, let's, let's hear from Jesus' mouth. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He mentions the cross well before he goes on the cross. The cross in those days was a sign of humiliation. It was a sign of execution. It was a sign of being lower than the low and being put on a cross. So for him to say that meant a lot more than it does to us. You know, for us, we think, okay, well, I need to bear my cross. It means either carry something or, you know. No, but for him, he's saying to go to the lowest of lows. If you're not willing to bear that, come after me. You cannot be my disciple. If you want to be a follower of Christ... I'm not telling you to go hate your family. I'm not telling you to go hate your mother. But what it's saying is, if you're not willing to go to these lengths, then it may just not work out. Go to um, Luke 9, 23. Luke. I feel like it should be like a little jingle when that comes across. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. 
it's very important, deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? A cost. It comes at a cost. And if you notice when Jesus says it, I need you to be willing to go to any length. I need you to be willing to go to any cost. I need you to be available is what he's saying in these things. That if you desire to lose his life for my sake, you'll find it. You'll save it. But go to Matthew 19, 27. This is where the disciples ask him, um, but what's our reward if we follow after you? And he says, and Peter answered and said to him, see, we have left all and followed you. I think some of us would, would go and be able to say that, right? I mean, maybe there's some things that we haven't. Maybe there's some things that we brought into this that we shouldn't have. We, we didn't leave all. But for the most part, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a disciple of Christ, you have left things in order to follow him. You have left dreams, passions, desires, those kind of things in order to follow after him. What shall we have? Isn't that interesting? Thinking about what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We know that these disciples, they did not know up to this point what this all meant. But we know that there will be twelve pillars in heaven, there will be twelve judges over the tribes of Israel, and it will be them. You know, it's just interesting that he says this will be your reward, you know. But then again, Jesus speaking in the internal things, not the present things. It doesn't say, well, if you follow after me, you'll have a great family life. It doesn't say if you follow after me, you'll have sweet genes. It doesn't say if you follow after me, you'll have lots of money and good health and you'll live to be 105. No, it doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say if you follow after me, you'll be safe. You'll be safe. It doesn't say that. What it says is, in glory, in the time where we move from corruptible to the incorruptible, there will be rewards for us. Let that not be our motivation, because everything we do here brings glory to Him, and it should bring glory to Him. Uh, but there are things set aside for you, for those who choose to be a disciple now, for those who choose to lose your life now in order to find it. I think that's one of the hardest things to do, is realize that I have to let go. I have to let go of this world. I have to let go of the things binding me to this world in order to move on to be a follower of Christ. So if we are following others, or following Christ, we can lead others to follow Christ. We are called as disciples of Christ to grow up in Christ. This is another important aspect. It's the examples that Jesus gave us, that we are to grow up in Christ. If you think about it, and I don't know y'all's lives, I don't know how long you've been Christians, you know, but when you were a baby Christian, you know, right off the gate, you know, you're naive to a lot of the things you know now, right? So the expectation that God may have upon you would be a lot less. But a year in, you know a little more. God has revealed a little more. The expectation has rose a little. Five years in, the expectation has rose a little more. Ten years in, the expectation has rose a little more. Again, as disciples of Christ, we are to be continually moving forward. That we are continually growing in Christ. I love the way Ephesians chapter 4 puts it. Um, 
Because remember, it tells us to go and teach, to observe all the things that, that Jesus commanded us. How do we know all those things? Unless we dive into his word, unless we know the things that are in this book. And he himself, is this Ephesians 4.12? Yeah, we'll, we'll go through the whole thing. For he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So again, this is talking about the church. This is talking about you guys. Me, we are the church. This room is not the church. The buildings across the street are not the church. We are the church. We are the bridegroom. It is all of us. And he's saying, these are the gifts that I have given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that being us, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which, can you think of what the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ is? That sounds impossible, doesn't it? That we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried away with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Note it says children. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, that's being us, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We are, we are to be growing up in Christ and growing old in Christ. That's what he desires of us, that we not remain children being tossed and fro, that we, uh, that we who ought to be teachers... Seeking after the milk, we should be seeking after the meat, you know. So he, he calls us out on that, you know. But we are to grow up in Christ. It's an important part of our walk. We are to grow old in Christ. Why? Because as disciples, you make disciples, you can teach others to grow up in Christ. It's part of what we're doing. We should be discipling others. Again, don't overthink it. It doesn't mean that you have to have this systematic theology, the systematic doctrine, the systematic uh, curriculum in order to, you have to reach this level to be able to do this. No, 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 no. He says, follow me. Help others follow me. It's as simple as that. Yet we blow it up in our mind. I think, you know, the older we get, we should be discipling those younger than us. When it comes to spiritual maturity, if you're here as far as your spiritual maturity goes, and it's not a prideful maturity, it's a real maturity, then those who have a lower maturity view, we should be building them up. We should be growing them up in the word. It's simple. It's, it's sometimes simple as just sharing our lives, sharing our experiences, sharing the word of God. It's, it's important. And I think if, if you've reached a certain maturity in your own spiritual walk and you're not discipling somebody, I think it really speaks to your maturity. It's, it's, it's what we're called to do, to be disciples, to go be disciples and to make disciples, teaching them and observing uh, all uh, to, uh, to teach others to observe the word of God. Uh, Hebrews 5.12 is up here, and, and it speaks about our duty based off our maturity. And if this offends you, I'm sorry, but this is something that has encouraged me in my own life. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, now that word teachers, don't get hung up on that either. Just because I'm up here teaching you doesn't mean that you're not teachers, because we teach all day long. And I'll explain that. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Sometimes that's a good thing, especially if you've gotten ahead of yourself. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Let that not be you. I can't say it that you are not, but I will say in my Christian walk, I have come to this several times. 
that there have been times where I have needed the original principles of God. The, I have needed milk in order to go back to solid food. It's just part of it sometimes. But let that not be you, that we should be desiring solid food uh, because there's going to be those up under you in spiritual maturity that, that, are gonna, that are on milk and you need to move them over to meat. You know, And it's as simple as just preaching the word, teaching them those things, speaking life into their lives instead of speaking death into their life. Advice is a scary thing, guys. You can have people come to you all day and ask for advice, and you could, you could either turn them towards hell or you can turn them towards heaven. It's, it's, it, I, I have discipled people in the past where they come to me and say, my friends are telling me this. I feel spiritually this is not right. What should I do? I say, ignore your friend's advice because it's not going to help you. It's the easy thing to do, and they may look like more of a friend to you because they're saying those things, but I'll be your friend and tell you the other things that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Again, let's not overthink being a disciple what it means. It literally just means caring for each other. The unity in Christ. You know, being one to build up others in the church um, uh, for this purpose. So let's keep going. Um, Verse 23. Now this is after Jesus, being our example, has went into these places. And also his example calling his disciples. And then our example is the disciples dropping everything and following after him. We go to verse 23. And Jesus went about, is it up there? All Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, wisdom, or teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went through all, out all of Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon possessed. That's the first time this is mentioned in the New Testament, by the way. And those, uh, and the, the epileptics and the paralytics, uh, I'm not sure how you say that, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. What time is it, by the way? It's 11.57. Oh, snap, three minutes. Um, so again, Jesus being our example, the three core parts of his ministry, especially here in the beginning, was teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Now, teaching simply means to educate others. Preaching means is to proclaim an idea. Uh, For us, it's to proclaim the gospel into other people's lives, to put it in front of them. Teaching is to take them and show them the meaning of these things and how to make them effective in our lives. So, teaching uh, is to educate. It's, it's, you know, everything we rely on as Christians, whether it's our hope, uh, power, our faith, our promises, wisdom, directions, how do we deal with our emotions, what do we do if we sin, you know, how do we not sin, all those things are found in here, right? We find all that stuff in the Word of God. So therefore, to be a teacher, all you have to do is point people to the Word of God. One, to know it yourself, and to point people to the Word of God. But not only that, we teach people with our lives, right? People see us, they observe us, and they learn from us, you know, if you're seen as somebody who is teaching. Remember, Jesus said, teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. So as disciples or followers of Christ, we are to be teaching with the way we live. It's an important thing that we be doing. We teach in our churches. I know some of you guys teach in your jobs, in your schools. You know, you are teachers. You are, you are taking something and, and giving them the meaning of it and making it effective in their life. You know, uh, but what are we teaching And I think that's something that you can only answer for yourself. What are you teaching? When it comes to discipling others, when it comes to helping others follow after Christ, what are you teaching? 
do they look into your life and go, he doesn't seem like he's a disciple of Christ? Because you know, I, you know, and and you know, I'm not saying that legalism and all that stuff that people observe you because we're all saved by grace. We're all fallen. We all need Jesus as much as the next person. But we should be walking according to our calling, walking worthy, as Ephesians says it, of our calling. And our calling is to be a disciple of His. You know, we really can't skate around that. And so. Um, we teach through those things. You know, Jesus went and he taught. He taught in the synagogues. You know, he was a respected rabbi. This is something that was very common. The rabbis would, would come into different towns. If they were respected, they would be able to teach. And a lot of times in those times, they were teaching new things. They were teaching new ideas a lot of times, which if you know about the Jewish faith, God gave them the law. God said, this is everything. You know, this is the Pentateuch. Well, then they went and they, they expanded on it. You know, they had the, the Mishnah and they, had, they, they took these laws that God gave them and said, well, this is a little easier to live by. And, and that, so that was a common thing. The Jews would do that. They would come and bring new ideas and uh, how to make it easier on the Sabbath to, to not work, you know. Um, so, so began teaching, and we should be teaching. Preaching, preaching is something is just literally, uh, it goes back to the Greek word to translate it, uh, the heralding of a king. So when the king had something to say, it was preached to his, um, his subjects, basically. It just means to declare, to proclaim. For us, what is it? It's the gospel, right? The gospel means the good news. We preach the gospel of the good news. And again, some are better than evangelism than others. I'm not very good at evangelism. I could sit up here all day and teach you how to evangelize, but when I go out in the world, it's just not something that is easy for me. But is it something that I should do? Yes. Is evangelism or preaching and teaching, you're not going to have one. Well, you will have teachers that are better teachers than preachers, but you, but it, they should always be doing the same thing. In a sermon, they will be teaching, yet at the same time, there's a time for preaching. Right? Unfortunately, some churches get so caught up on preaching that they're never teaching and their congregation remains babes. They are always set on milk. They're not moved on to solid food. Now, same thing with preaching. You know, if you get a room full of, you know, 300 saved people and all you're doing is preaching, what are you really doing? Right? So, uh, you know, a, a good pastor, pastor and teachers, they should be able to preach and teach at the same time. Um, still learning that. Um, but again, this was this was aspects of Jesus' ministry. So, being a disciple, we should be teaching, we should be preaching. Now, healing his miracles. Now, that's something that you can go. I've never seen a miracle. I've never seen a healing. Maybe you have. It can happen. But but maybe you've never seen one of those. Um, basically, what it means is making broken men whole or broken women whole. I mean, if you look at uh, what he says right here, and all fame went out through all Syria. And they brought to him all sick people, all sick people. That means those who had colds, um, those who had leprosy, those who had various cancers. He says all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases, torments, those who were demon-possessed. So torments, um, there's, there's a difference between torments, um, uh, afflictions, torments, and demon-possessed. Again, this is the first time in the New Testament the word demon-possessed is used. If you look at the Old Testament... Where do you find somebody who's demon-possessed? There's not much mention of it. So there's something that is occurring at the time of Christ's life where demon possession is more prevalent. Or maybe it's just now, the, now that God's walking among them, it's, it's, you know, it's being seen in a different way. Um, but this talks to mental disorders. Uh, this talks to you know, the epilepsy, you know, those with the palsy, you know, physical disorders um, that affect the mental 
Um, and he's saying basically in other accounts, they said literally they would throw people in front of Jesus and they were just getting healed. Men were coming that were born without thumbs and were leaving with thumbs. Men that were coming without legs and were leaving with legs. I mean, this is why his fame grew. Uh, you know, the, the demon possessed, those who had demon possession, you know, Jesus having all authority over them called those out. This was blowing people's mind. I think in the Old Testament, the only thing I can think of is when the, the spirit comes before Saul, you know, Samuel and that whole thing is happening. Um, but if you look, and, and there's, there's a lot of people that speculate why there's more demon possession in the New Testament. Um, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but it's, it's just interesting to look at that this is the first time in the Bible that, that it is actually mentioned. But Jesus, is, he wanted to heal them. It's such an important thing. And I think for us, you're like, well, I've never seen a healing or a miracle. But I, I beg to differ. I, I think maybe if you're someone that's seeking a sign of some kind or I want to see a miracle happen, then that's not really God's motive for you. He doesn't want to, to, to do something in front of you just so you've seen it. But I think miracles happen in, in other ways. And uh, if you put up Ephesians 2, uh, verse 1, and I think this is something that we can all relate to. This is a miracle that we all have in our own life. So you could say, I've never seen a miracle. And you know, Brian, I think he's going, it's a miracle that Davey's here preaching right now. Yeah. It's a miracle, <laughs> right? And we all have this miracle in common. And you, he made alive who were dead. Every single one of us have that in common. If you are a believer in Christ and you have been born again, you who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power, that being Satan, of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. It's what you were born into. You didn't choose it. It's what you were born into. All babies, babies are super sinful, just so you know. It's just, they're born into it. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind. It's what we were born into, right? You know, you don't have to teach your kid not to lie. Or you don't have to teach your kid to lie, right? You teach him not to lie, right? You know, you don't have to teach him to steal. You teach him not to steal or to say bad words. It's Again, it's, it's our nature. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh, of the mind, they were once uh, nature, children of wrath, just as the others. But God, but God, that right there, that's the miracle we all have. That changes everything for everybody in this room, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So when did God start loving us? What's the top say? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God loved, God's love for you expanded for the day you gave your heart to him. Trust me. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. That's you. Raise us to get, you, will, you sit right now in the heavenly places in Christ. That's your place as disciples of Christ. That's your place. That's a miracle that in the ages to come that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his, and his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the, the straw that we suck up grace through. Uh, and not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Let any, which, aren't you so glad when you get to heaven, you're not going to have to have a conversation with somebody who's going to go, guess what I did to get here? <laughs> It'll never happen. Jesus is the only way. It says, through grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. You had nothing to do with it. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship. And we've already gone through that. Again, we have all experienced the miracle in our own personal lives. Take that into the healing of others. Go out in life as disciples, as followers, teaching, preaching, and healing. Now, 
let God do the work. He has foreordained these good works for you to do them, but we know through the Great Commission that it's something that we should actively be doing as disciples, that we should be teaching others, that we should be preaching the gospel in some kind of manner and healing others. Now, here are healing ministries. I have seen, not in America, but I have seen in other parts of this world where healing does happen. But focus more on that and what God can do in someone's life, how he can take somebody who's in complete darkness, give them a but God moment, and move them on into glory. I think that's a miracle that we can all wrap our mind around, especially if you look in your own heart and your own life. I look in my own life and I go, goodness. I'm that fisherman on the boat. I'm like, you need to keep walking, Jesus, because you got the wrong guy. You do. You know, I can never be what you want me to be. I can never, I can never do those things that you want me to do. I can never live that life. And he goes, I know. But through me, all things are possible. And we always have that to lean on. So let us be disciples, simply followers, not Sunday followers, not Sunday through Friday followers, because you need your weekend. You know, let us be daily followers, minute by minute, hour by hour, followers of Christ, set apart. Saint means to be set apart, going where he wants us, being a disciple, making disciples, and being partakers in the ministry. You all have a duty to be partakers in the ministry. Because if you're not a partaker in the ministry, you're a taker of the ministry. You're just coming to take. I want you to be partakers. I want you to join in on the ministry, whether it's in this room or outside in this community, anywhere in your jobs, in your families. We should be partakers in the ministry. And we have him to fall back on. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to be done. And uh, thank you guys for letting me come today. So Father, we, uh, we thank you. It's interesting and scary looking in to my own life and going, Davy, I called you. I just pray that I can be worthy of that, Lord. I just pray that you continually move me forward. Um, and for us as the church, God, that you're continually moving us forward, knowing that, Jesus, you never stopped. You always move forward into the next place, into the next place, into the next person, the next person, and then eventually onto that cross. You never stop, Lord. Let us not stop. Let us move forward in this walk, um, being disciples of yours, Lord, not overthinking it, but in simplicity, making followers of you. Just simply, just as Andrew did, bring people to you, using our experiences, using the gifts that you've give, given us, Lord, using your Holy Spirit, all those things that you've provided for us, Lord. Let us be disciples. Let us be followers. Let us be set apart, uh, doing a different work than this world will have us do, Lord. Thank you for this place. I pray you continue to bless this church uh, and where it's going and where you brought it uh, and the way it is today, Lord. I thank you for Jason always and his heart for first you, Father, because everything that's happening here is his heart for you. Um, I pray that we can, be, we can have that example well in our own life, Lord. And I uh, just pray you continue to bless everyone here, uh, speaking to their lives, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And break. Planning their mother's garden. She's like, I remember.